0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. I want to take a break today from John's Gospel for a while and go back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles there handy, you can open up to that. We'll get to the text in a moment. You'll recall that John opened his gospel with a declaration that Jesus Christ, the word, was there in the beginning. Not that Jesus was there as the first created being, but that he was the creator of everything. The last thing we heard Jesus say at the end of John chapter 8 is before Abraham was, I am. He was speaking of his pre-existence and his eternal nature and his deity. And in between, we've heard Jesus proclaim again and again his sovereign authority and power over sickness and disease, over nature, and even over death. And so today I want to go back to where it all started, Genesis chapter 1. And I want to go back there because the book of Genesis lays the foundations for the, everything that follows in the Bible, including everything that we find in John's Gospel, Understanding Genesis will help us to piece all the together all the pieces and threads in the rest of the Bible. So let's uh, begin by reading all of chapter 1 to get our bearings. Genesis 1:1 1, 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the war- the face of the waters. and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And he called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The Bible begins by telling us that the vast universe that we look out at on a clear summer night is the work of God's hands. The ground we stand on, the mountains we climb, the water we bathe in, the air we breathe, all exists only because God chose to create it. You may have noticed that there's a rhythm in creation. Over the course of six days, God creates in stages. And at the end of each day comes the refrain, there was evening and there was morning the first day, and the second day, and the third day, and so on. So on day one, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates light. Now, what the source of that light is, is not explained to us. It isn't the sun, because the sun isn't actually created until day four. So the light must be from a different source. Possibly it's from God himself. At the Very far end of the Bible, in Revelation 22.5, it tells us, speaking of the new heaven and the new earth to come, that night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light. The earth was without form and void, it tells us in verse 2. Our planet was an unshaped mess, it would seem. Some scholars and theologians Believe that there's a huge time gap between verse 1 and verse 2. God creates the heavens and the earth in verse 1, and then there's a gap of maybe a billion years or more before verse 2. I think the main reason why they propose a long break between the verses is to try and make the Genesis 1 account fit better with secular science belief that the universe is billions of years old. If that theory is true, Then verse 1 speaks of the initial creation, but verse 2 speaks of God finally getting around to doing something with that creation or possibly remaking it, as some believe, after the first attempt didn't go right. Some suggest that animal life and even early human life evolved in this period between verses 1 and verse 2. And then for whatever reason, God wiped it all out and started again. In verse 2, I personally can't see any reason to accept this theory. It sounds like nonsense to me, and without any decent support that I can see anywhere else in Scripture. Rather, I think it's a rather feeble attempt to fit dinosaurs and fossils into the creation account. Now, you may have noticed that each act act of creation was performed by speaking a few words, let there be. Now, if we want to create light, we flick a light switch. The lights come on, assuming, of course, that we paid our electricity bill. Not that we're actually creating light. We're only utilising a resource that's been provided by someone else. Someone else has manufactured the light bulb and sold it to us. Someone else has generated the electricity from coal or from wind and provided the wires to our houses. Someone else has dug up the coal or built the wind farm that generates the energy to feed the power grid in our state. All of it is utilising existing resources. None of it creates out of nothing. There's a Latin term for creation out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the term. takes very little effort for us to turn the lights on. And if you have your home set up with smart technology, you can turn them on by merely speaking. Lights turn on. We can control the TV in our lounge room by speaking to a device that's in our kitchen. It's the marvels of modern science. But God didn't just turn on the lights in day one. He created the light. Scientists still can't explain what light actually is. Is it waves or is it particles or is it something else? No one is sure, for it seems to have characteristics of different things. But God knows about light because he created it. The book of Hebrews tells us, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. For reasons not explained to us here, God chose to spend a whole day creating it. Now, is that a 24-hour day? The text does tell us there was evening and there was morning the first day, and it repeats that mantra through each day until it gets to there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It certainly implies 24-hour days. However, many people, including many Christians, would argue that the Bible is using poetic language here and that each day represents an undetermined long period of time. After all, didn't the Apostle Peter write, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So maybe each day in Genesis chapter 1 represents not 24 hours or not a thousand years, but a billion years. That would help it to align it much more closely with modern scientific theory, at least. But then it says too much. It leaves too many holes. For example, that would mean that the plants and the fruit trees were growing for a billion years before the sun was created. I'm not sure that helps the case. God could have spent... Six billion years creating the heavens and the earth and everything on it if he wanted to? Of course he could. He could have taken six seconds creating the heavens and the earth and everything on it. Of course he could. It's no more exhausting for him to do it quickly than it is to do it slowly. There's no drain on God's resources doing and creating anything, no matter how large or how small. No matter how simple or how complex, God is an unlimited in his power and his resources. That's what makes God, God. Now, there have been big debates amongst Christians about the creation time period. Is it six literal days or is it figurative language representing billions of years? Whole ministries have sprung up around each perspective. A multitude of books have been sold. Documentaries filmed, research done, even museums open to promote their particular cause. Then there are Christians who remove God from the creation equation entirely and are happy to accept the formation of the universe by a Big Bang or whatever new theory happens to arise. The Big Bang theory, apart from being a TV show, is also a theory that claims that an explosion created everything, around about 13 billion years ago. Basically, Big Bang boils down to, in the beginning, there was nothing, and it exploded. Yes, I know that sounds ridiculous. Seems to me that it requires more faith to believe that than to believe in a God who would create. People have postulated other theories over time to explain the existence of the heavens and the earth are too. Some claim that the universe is eternal. It had no beginning. It just always was and is and always will be. That, of course, flies in the face of various laws of science and physics. The laws of thermodynamics, for example, refute the eternal existence of the universe. For example, heat naturally passes from a warmer object to a cooler object. The evidence of that is in your kitchen. Make a cup of tea and leave it on the bench for long enough and it'll eventually cool down to room temperature. The heat in the cup passes into the atmosphere of the room, increasing it by maybe a billionth of a degree until everything equalises. The room and a cup of tea measure the same temperature. Now, that happens with the universe too. Heat from the sun is warming the earth, and in the process, the sun is slowly running out of energy. If the universe was eternal, then at some point in the past, all heat sources would have transferred their excess heat to all other cooler objects until the whole universe would reach room temperature. Only this room temperature would be hundreds of degrees below zero. Clearly, we haven't reached that temperature yet, so it cannot be that the universe has always existed. Now, another theory which sounds like it's been inspired by science fiction is that there are more universes than just this one universe that we inhabit. In fact, there are many universes, multiverses in existence. Now, obviously, we can't see them because We exist only in this universe. But suppose that's true and there are multiverses and suppose one of them ruptured, spilling some of its contents out to create another universe, the one we inhabit. Could that be the origin of our universe? Maybe, but it doesn't solve the problem. If our universe came from another one, did that one also come from a previous one? and a previous one, and a previous one, and so on back. Where did the original universe come from that started the whole process? You see, that theory solves nothing. Ultimately, all it does is push back the search for origins, but it never gets back to the original cause. Now, One thing I'm fairly sure of, though, is that very few people will ever be convinced by the opposition's argument. Most people have already made up their minds. If you haven't, though, it's important for you to decide how much weight you'll put on the Bible's account and therefore which side you will throw your lot in with. For me, I'm a young earth creationist. I believe God did create the heavens and the earth by his word in six literal 24-hour days several thousand years ago. Now, I could be wrong, but from where I sit, that's the only option that makes sense of the rest of the Bible because an awful lot of the theology of the Bible rests on the supernatural creation of all things by a hands-on creator with a plan and a purpose for it all. The fact that God tells us that he did it in six days must mean something. There must be a reason why he said he did it in six days and not six seconds or six billion years. The answer to that question, of course, doesn't lie in our text today. We'll have to wait till later on and further into the Bible to find out the answer to that. Unlike us who use existing materials and resources to create a painting or light a room or build a house, God did it all without any resources to call on. He created the raw materials for the universe and everything in it. What sort of power is required to create ex nihilo? It's unimaginable. And yet God did it without any expenditure of effort. Now, before we go much further, I find it's interesting that Genesis only actually spends two chapters dealing with creation. It's a very sparse account. It uses very economical language to deal with such an incredible topic. And yet when it comes to people, 11 chapters are spent on Isaac's life, 12 chapters on Joseph's, 13 on Abraham that might tell us a little bit of the relative importance of humanity in God's scheme. Obviously, none of us know humanity could exist without the creation of the universe in the first place. But it tells us, I think, a little bit about how much emphasis we should put on interpretations of the creation account. And yet, creation is important. But as important as it is, It's not the most important thing about God's work. The universe reveals God's eternal power and his divine nature, but there seems to be a special place in God's heart for this planet that we inhabit. Amid the very expensive search for extraterrestrial life, it seems to me that the Bible, while not actually saying it outright, implies that we are unique in the universe. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Everything else, from plant, from planets to insects, was created by God speaking a word, let there be. In contrast, Adam was created by God getting down on his hands and knees, if we were to use human imagery, to form Adam out of the dust of the earth. You can picture it like a potter shaping a bowl from clay. God shapes a man out of the dirt, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. There's a real intimacy in this act of creation. God gets his hands dirty to create the first man, and he formed Eve, the first woman, out of Adam's rib. Why not just speak them into being like all the rest of creation? Oh, look at that in a bit more detail in a later message. Now, the first chapters of Genesis tell us nothing about the process of creation except that God spoke. But incredible things happen in those very few verses. Let's run through the events of the six days to refresh our memories. On day one, the heavens and the earth are created. On day 2, waters separated between the water on the earth and the water above the earth, presumably in clouds or some sort of canopy over the earth. On day 3, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees are created. Day 4, the sun, the moon and the stars are created. On day 5, birds and fish are created. And on day 6, Wild animals, livestock and reptiles are created, and man is created. The Bible gives not the slightest hint that there is any truth to the theory of evolution. Modern scholars and many Christians want to try and reconcile the creation account with long-age evolution, but every time it's creation that is expected to give ground to evolution. Never the other way around. Have you noticed that? Now, I certainly don't have all the answers, but neither do the scientists or the theologians or the scholars. What is declared to be settled science today may well be discarded in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years. History shows that science is constantly changing with new discoveries and new theories. So I choose to believe what God said, that he created out of nothing in six days. And I believe him, firstly, because it makes sense out of the rest of the Bible, and secondly, because I've found his word to be reliable. 60 years ago, pastor and Bible expositor Graham Scroggie pointed out that the very first verse of the Bible confronts a number of false beliefs that are held by people. It refutes the eternal nature of matter, as I mentioned earlier. If God created, then all of the universe came into being at a certain point in time. And I might point out that this universe has an expiry date. One day, God will destroy it. This time he'll destroy it with fire, not with water like he did in Noah's day, and he'll remake it anew. A new heaven and a new earth is promised to us. The first verse of the Bible also refutes atheism, the belief that there is no God, by declaring that God is. He exists. Regardless of when creation uh, creation began, whether it's 6,000 years ago or 13 billion years ago, God was already there. God did not have a beginning. Rather, God is the cause of everything else beginning. This verse refutes polytheism, the belief that there are many gods, by revealing a beautiful unity in creation. Everything is in perfect harmony and synchronicity with everything else. If many gods were involved, It'd be like that uh, proverbial horse designed by a committee, the camel. You can be sure that the universe would be a mess with each God demanding his part run the way he wants it to run and look the way he wants it to look. And who cares what all the other gods want? It refutes pantheism, the popular New Age belief that God is in everything and that everything is God. God and nature are not the same thing. God is separate from nature, and he is infinitely superior to anything else in creation. If God created, he could not also be a part of that creation. It refutes agnosticism. Every effect must have a cause. If the the universe exists, it must have come from somewhere or from someone. Just as a building must have a designer and a builder, the universe must have come from somewhere. Its very existence demands it, and it refutes fatalism. The universe could not have just happened. It was planned by God, and it was created by God precisely the way he wanted it to be. David sang in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Each and every star is exactly where God wants it to be. Nothing about it is random or accidental. Now, we haven't got very far in Genesis today, but what we have seen is that God, in his infinite power and wisdom, chose to create. He didn't have to create. There's nothing missing in God, nothing missing in the Trinity that God needs to find something outside of himself to fill the hole. That's a unique and a sad characteristic of man, the need to deal with the emptiness within that results from the fall way back in the Garden of Eden. We'll get to that sometime soon too, God willing. But God chose to create. He did it to display his glory. And he created mankind because God is relational by nature. The Trinity shows us that. He wants others to enjoy his glory and his goodness. You'll recall that John began his gospel with these words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And that I'm pretty certain is John consciously mimicking Moses writing the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means then, That when we read Genesis chapter 1, we're reading the acts of Jesus Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus, but Jesus nonetheless. He is the God who spoke the universe into being. He is the God who got on his hands and his knees to fashion the first man. To fashion him in his image, out of the dust of the earth. That will become clearer to us when we get to Genesis chapter 2. We don't have the time to go there today. But he, Jesus Christ, is the one responsible for the existence of each and every one of us. He knows us by name. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And he stores each tear that we shed in a bottle. This God, this sovereignly powerful God, Is also intimately involved in every facet of our lives, from conception to death. There is not a moment in our lives that he does not have a hand in somehow. In fact, this God was intimately involved in our lives from before the creation of the universe. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Revelation 13, verse 8, warns that all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name is not written in the before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, if you're a Christian today, it's because this incredibly powerful God, who is complete in himself and has no needs, has no empty holes to fill, he chose you before he even began this amazing act of creation. He chose you to enjoy his presence and to dwell with him forever. That's a mind-boggling thought. It's a humbling thought also. We all know our weaknesses, our failures, and mortality. We all know that there is a vast chasm between us and a holy and perfect God. But He chose us to form us in our mother's wombs that we should dwell with Him forever. God is not a distant deity. He's not an impersonal force. Rather, he delights to have a relationship with us. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to turn to Jesus Christ now, creator of everything you can see and everything you can't see. Put your trust in him, and you too will enjoy friendship with the most powerful being In the universe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you created. Though you had no needs, no reason why you should have to create something you chose to anyway. Because, Lord, you are a relational God, and you delight to share your glory, your power, your majesty, your creation with these lesser beings called humans. Thank you, Lord, that not only did you create this universe and this earth for us to inhabit, but you had us in mind before you ever did it. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will will have written on our hearts this amazing truth that the God of all creation is also the most intimate and close friend that we could ever have if we put our trust in him. And, Lord, today we put our trust in Jesus Christ. We declare our trust in Jesus Christ, the creator of all things and the one who gave us new hearts, new spirits, that we should walk closely with our heavenly father, that we should hear and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit We thank you, Jesus, that you have done that work overcoming the enemy by your death on the cross and your resurrection and made us new creatures. Lord, we worship you. You are, as we sang, indescribable, uncontainable, and yet You dwell in us, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. You dwell within us, and we dwell in you, Jesus, by faith. Lord, we pray for those who have not yet experienced this new birth, this new spirit. Lord, would you do an act of creation in them to give them a new heart, take out the old heart of flesh, the heart of stone and replace it with a new heart, Lord, that is inclined towards you, Jesus Christ, the one and only, the beginning and the end, the one whose presence we look forward to dwelling in, Every day for eternity. We pray this in His precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to au.